Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Folks, we've got a heck of a classic episode for you today. If you are a longtime fellow conspiracy realist, then you know that we love all things UFOs. We also love a little bit of hidden history. And today we're coming to you with a story about UFOs from ancient Japan, Utsuru Bune. Yeah, it's easy to think the UFO phenomenon is like sort of an American thing, you know, with uh, Area 51 and all of that. And, and that's partially because, you know, we live in the United States. So maybe I'm speaking from within that very bubble. But in fact, there are other places around the world that have very similar reports of UFO sightings. And today is about one of those stories that you might not know about. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Noel is with us in spirit. And they call me Ben. We are joined by our super producer, Tristan. Of course, you are you. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Never fear. Uh, our compatriot will be returning physically, yes. as well as one would presume as spiritually, uh, in a later episode. Matt, we've got something uh, pretty interesting for you today. Oh, yes. Yeah. Everybody out there listening, this is something that I am just learning about. Uh, ben, I think you had seen this before in mm -hmm. whispers on the internet and in books, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a fascinating happening that occurs way back in the 1800s that may be an encounter with another species, another civilization. Right. You've heard of this before. Uh, we have often over the course of the show explored aliens and inexplicable history. Uh, we've found numerous examples of just weird, weird stuff, allegations of lost technology, entire lost civilizations. And, of course, at some point, what's that guy's name, George Slukos? 
Uh, Sukulos, yeah. Sukulos, the ancient aliens mm-hmm. guy. At some point, aliens, extraterrestrials, or allegations thereof. We do want to point out that we and the world at large has found no universally agreed solid proof of any sort of alien encounter. That but, is be- begrudgingly true. But we have seen some incredibly strange stuff nonetheless. And as much as it may irk humanity to admit this, we may well never know the full story behind some historical accounts and events. Yeah, it's true. Uh, A lot of times it's written down once by one person, and we can find that, but that's all we have to go on. Mm -hmm. And we do know that uh, at various times, quote-unquote historical accounts have been anecdotal, Mm -hmm. heavily biased, written with some sort of strange agenda in mind, or entirely made up and yeah. passed off as the real thing. Yeah, to make uh, make the whims of some king or some, mm-hmm. you know, it could be a monarchy. It could be sure. just a government. It could be a single influential person. Hey, increasingly, it could be a corporation. Oh. Right. <laughs> what happens when they write the textbooks? Oh, boy. I know. An episode perhaps for another day. But we point this out because we want to thank all of the historians in the audience who are probably, as we speak, going nuts over figuring out some detail that other people have overlooked, misinterpreted, Mm -hmm. or even purposefully uh, mischaracterized. Or even you armchair historians out there who are just scouring the web on your own time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The work you do is important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody else is doing it. So thank you. Right. And history, our understanding of history is nowhere near as clear cut and uh, concrete as some people would have us believe. And then also, you know, this sort of confusion persists in the modern day. We're not so different from the earlier examples of our species. So today we're looking at one such account, a strange historical account. We'll call it the legend of the Utsuru Bune. And before we dive in here, we want to be crystal clear with this. Uh, you don't speak Japanese. I am unaware if I do. Okay. And I will also be surprised if I start speaking Japanese. Okay. We're saying this because um, we do want to be respectful to different cultures and if there are any mispronunciations or uh, mischaracterized Americanisms that sweep in uh, in regards to our accents, then uh, we hope that it's still close enough to get the gist. Yeah, and let us know if we do make any mistakes like that. You can reach us, jonathan.strickland at howstuffworks.com. We uh, we welcome all feedback. Our complaint department is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, We're diving in, or better yet, we're floating ashore to Japan in the dawn of the 19th century. Our story is called, we said it at the top, Utsuro Bune, but you may also see it uh, online somewhere as Utsuro Fune with an F or Uro Bune, kind of putting them together. And it refers to this object, a ship of sorts, that allegedly washed ashore in 1803, uh, in Hitachi province on the, that's on the eastern coast of Japan and it's located near where modern day Tokyo is. Not quite, but near there. Which we will, we will explore that part of the story mm-hmm. in a little bit further depth. Accounts of this tale appear in multiple texts. Three of the most popular examples are also from 
the early to mid 19th century. So there's one uh, called the Toen Shosetsu, mm-hmm. uh, which translates to Tales from the Rabbit Garden, published in 1825. This has the most detailed account or detailed anecdote. And there are similar stories, similar enough that we we pretty much know they're retellings of the same thing mm-hmm. uh, from a work called Diaries and Stories of Castaways in 1835 and Dust of the Apricot in 1844. So now, what happens? Well, well, immediately right here, we have to point out at the top, yes. as we've been talking about history and things being mm-hmm. write, written down, we're 22 years uh, the recording of this is 22 years after the alleged event, right? Which yes. is already a little suspect, but perhaps it was mm-hmm. um, it was more of a a story told by word of mouth, that kind of thing. Sure, wasn't necessarily recorded in mm-hmm. any history. This happening, uh, but just keep that in mind as we go through here. Right, right, right. So, according to the legend of Utsuro Bune, there was this young woman. She was attractive. She arrived on a beach aboard this thing that they referred to as a hollow ship. Because they had no words to describe it, mm-hmm. this thing. Yeah. And there were, there were local fishermen who, who brought her inland. They wanted to know what the, what the heck's going on here. And they found that she was unable to communicate with these guys because she spoke some other language that they were unfamiliar with. And the fishermen ended up returning her to this ship, this hollow ship that they found her in. And then they pushed her back out to sea. And according to the legend, it drifted away. That's the gist. And it sounds like there are a couple of... uh, (laughs) Yeah, there's some styling on it. Yes. Excellent summation, Matt. We can already tell it sounds like there are a few things that have been glossed over in this story. Oh, for sure. That's definitely the... uh, Crib Notes version, uh, when you see it written down like that. And we have some images here of the ship. Do you want to get into that now, or we can come back to that later? Uh, let's, yeah, we can, we can go into it now. Uh, so as we said, February 22nd, 1803, that's when these local fishermen see this ship mm-hmm. drifting in the water. They tow it to land and they take measurements of it. So they find that it is, uh, almost 11 feet high. 3.3 meters and uh, almost 18 feet wide, 5.45 meters. Mm-hmm. And to be more exact, it's 10.83 feet high and 17.88 feet wide. That's kind of weird. Why do we have such uh, apparently specific measurements? Well, there's an answer. There is, yes, <laughs> because the uh, these measurements in meters and feet are conversions from the measurement system that the Japanese community was using at the time. So what may have been a more rounded number or approximation in their original measurement system, when converted mm-hmm. to the measurement systems we use today, it's going to come out. It's going to come out wonky. It's like the important part of this description is not that they were measuring in feet and meters. You know, they weren't, mm-hmm. they weren't going, okay, that's 17.87. Somebody put your thumb, somebody put your thumb on the, on the tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hold it, hold it down. <laughs> and now uh, the, the shape of this thing specifically reminded a lot of the witnesses of something that they knew of, that they saw in, in their everyday lives as part of ritual. Um, and it was an incense burner, a type of incense mm-hmm. burner. 
the specific rounded shape of the boat. Yeah, that's the other thing. This this is not a box. It has like a it has a dome top to it of sorts. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit wider at the top than it is at the base, almost like a similar to a cupcake shape. That's, you know, that's kind of what I'm seeing too, but the bottom is almost more pointed in this right. weird way like a ship would be where the the weight is meant to be at the center of mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. And then water displacement occurs as you move to the outer edges. Right, yeah. Um, so it seems like it could have been meant to float, like an actual boat. Mm-hmm. And from the surface, this would have looked like a floating disc mm-hmm. or a bubble, like floating on the surface of the water, which has led many people uh, more on the, the fringe conjecture side of stuff to ask themselves if this was a USO. Perhaps. Right? You which know, is something you turned me on to a long yeah, time ago. Unidentified submerged object. But in this case, it would be a U. It would be a UFO, but it'd be a floating object. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, and as long as it's not a sinking object. Yeah. Oh, and just, uh, just, yeah. just because there are some artist depictions of this mm-hmm. that you can find online. Uh, if you take a look at them, in my mind, just when I glance at it, it looks like some kind of escape capsule or maybe from uh, an early spaceship or an early rocket that, mm-hmm. let's say, NASA would have sent up. Um, the module that comes down and returns to Earth, that's um, what it looks like to it's me. like some sort of reentry. Yeah, device. exactly. Well, we do know a little bit more about the craft itself or the ship. The upper part of the vessel appeared to be made of a red-coated rosewood, while the lower part was covered with plates, brazen plates, uh, that people conjectured were meant to protect it from sharp-edged rocks so it wouldn't pierce the ship and compromise its ability to function. Yeah, because it didn't seem to have any kind of control system. Like mm-hmm. you, It's just kind of floating there in the ocean. And you never know what you're going to run into. And the upper part, allegedly, had several windows made of glass or crystal covered with bars and clogged with uh, an unidentified resin that they believe came from a tree. The windows, however, were completely transparent. And this is important because the fishermen looked through the windows and that's when they saw not only uh, the occupant of mm-hmm. the vessel, which we'll we'll get to in a moment, uh, but also they saw text written in an unknown language uh, decorating the interior of the ship. And there's so many questions that go through my mind when you start thinking about why would there be text inside the vehicle? And uh, we'll get into that a little later as well. But they also found other stuff in there. There were bed sheets. Mm -hmm. So apparently the occupant was, you know, sleeping in this thing, or at least would have been sleeping in this thing. There was a bottle with some water in it, quite a lot. Uh, according to legend, it was 3.6 liters, and we get back into that whole measurement right, thing. Right, right, right. Um, there was even some cake and some meat that was prepared. So we know that these uh, we know that these witnesses were able to identify uh, items of sustenance, right, mm-hmm. food and water, and then also bedding. Um, the woman that they saw. Inside the ship, they supposed that she was 18 to 20 years old. She was said to be about a little bit less than five feet tall, 4.92 feet or 1.5 meters. Uh, she had red hair, 
and red eyebrows, which was very unusual, right? Sure. Uh, her hair was elongated by artificial white extensions. So huh. let me check with you guys on this. Doesn't that seem a little weird because all of a sudden weave makes an appearance in this story? Yeah, in 1803. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can't say that I'm any kind of expert on the hairstylings of the 1800s. You're not a hair historian? <laughs> no, not a hair historian. Right. Um, but that does seem a bit odd, especially considering they were trying to figure out what they were made out of. Uh, yeah. In the stories, and it was written down that perhaps they were made out of some kind of fur um, or some kind of powdered textile, uh, like just some strange substance mm-hmm. that was elongating her hair. And then they go on to say, and you'll read this in multiple accounts and other videos on the subject that you can find out there on the net. This hairstyle cannot be found in any literature, whatever that means. Huh. I don't think that's... I'm not so amazed by that. You know what yeah. I mean? Because it's a big world. There's a lot of different hairstyles yeah. that don't show up in magazines or are, you know, have illustrations from the 1800s. The uh, lady's skin was a very pale pink shade. She wore long, smooth clothes of unknown fabrics. Okay, unknown fabrics. No, and, and here's where we would start asking were we like uh investigative lawyers? Were this a trial? This would be the part where the defendant's story breaks down. The witnesses say that the woman began speaking. No one understood her. She did not seem to understand the fisherman either, so no one could ask about her origin. Although she appeared friendly and courteous, she acted strange, and she was always holding a pale box a little bit less than 24 inches in size. She would not allow anyone to touch the box. Hmm. The fishermen disassembled, apparently, disassembled the ship. And then they started conjecturing. They started asking themselves, who is this person? What is this person doing? Is this a person? Yeah. And we'll explore that as well. Right now, in 2017, in this episode, after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. And we're back. Ben, I have to go. Let's. I'm doing the uh, minus ten seconds thing on my iPad right now. Uh-huh. Going back. Yeah. So I want to get to a group of local fishermen mm-hmm. on the coast of Japan meeting someone who they can't understand the language, and there's no immediate translator there mm-hmm. for whatever language is being spoke. Doesn't it seem like maybe it could be a traveler from any number of other places? Sure. Burbank? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody from Burbank got in a ship. Uh, well, that would be, that would end up, of course, being a um, time traveler. Then, sure. Right. Well, you have to imagine there are a lot, there are a lot of places that someone floating in a ship that doesn't have any kind of controls could be coming from. However, it seems like it would have, have to be a, a short journey in order to, to survive in that thing, unless it was packed full of food and water. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, we can get into more of that later, but I just, I'm just imagining a bunch of local fishermen not being able to understand many languages. I know if I was one of those fishermen and I only spoke Japanese, mm-hmm. that's it. I, I can't understand anything you're saying to me. I'm sorry. Sure. Yeah. It, but there's also a situation where you would think through hand gestures right or or drawing some would, communication it would be possible to to yeah have some sort of two-way communication i i don't know have you ever been in a situation where you're talking to someone who doesn't have a common language with you absolutely yeah yeah and a lot of it you're right can be solved in those ways i I wonder if there was any kind of panic going on because of the somewhat mysterious situation everybody was in. Mm -hmm. Maybe that led to even (laughs) less communication being available. Who knows? So that's a, I mean, that's a really, that's a really good point. And we are probably never going to know (laughs) what this person was saying. I'm pretty sure they're not from Burbank, but other than that, we don't, we don't know what they said. Correct. We do, however, have um, in these accounts, we have people who claim to be eyewitnesses. One was a, an older man from the local village, and he thought, he didn't think this is some strange alien or extraterrestrial. He thought that this passenger was a princess, perhaps, of a foreign realm, and that she married in her homeland. But, and this this guy is... He's clearly going, yeah. got a future as a screenwriter. He's going full backstory. Uh huh. Yeah, full backstory. Uh, he says, well, she's probably princess from foreign realm and she married in her homeland. But when she had an affair with a townsman after the marriage, it caused a scandal and the lover was executed. 
the princess was banned from home. I just have him. I, I just Whoa. have this idea of him doing it like a TV pitch. Oh yeah, sure. You know, it's like, and the princess, right, was banned from home, so she. uh she had to go, but she, they couldn't kill her because everybody liked her, and she had a lot of sympathy, and she mm-hmm. had like this big fan club. So they said, "Okay, we're not gonna, we're not gonna kill you, but um, get in this weird boat." Yeah, he was wor- he was working on a script for a play that he was gonna be putting on, and man, he just went full on. Mm-hmm. So, under his account, if this were correct, then that box, uh would contain the head of her deceased lover. Whoa. And here's something else. So in the past, this wasn't the first time this kind of trope turned up. In the past, a very similar object with a woman apparently washed ashore on a close-by beach. And this time there was a, not a box, but there was a small board with a head pinned to it. Jeez. So then... Again, this person's conjecture is that the box would probably be the same, and that's why she protected it so fervently. Mm. And there are other legends in Japan that have to do with something kind of similar, where there's a a box that's given to a character, and the character is told never to open the box. Right. And I'm sorry that I'm not giving specifics, because this is just uh, from cursory reading, but... Inside the box is something very special you're not allowed to show anybody. But when the character returns to his home, he realizes that nobody around that he knows is there anymore. And turns out it's been 300 years since he was last in his hometown, even though he doesn't think it's been 300 years. Hmm. And he proceeds to open the box. And inside the box was actually his age, like his all the time that she Uh, like saved him. Yeah. That this goddess saved him. Uh, was actually inside the box and he became an old man when he opened it. Right. Okay. That's a new one to me. Um, another similar anecdote from the folklore perspective of the, the forbidden access mm-hmm. concept uh, would be the famous story. Was it Blackbeard? Okay. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. It was Bluebeard. All uh, right. The pirate captain who would marry somebody or he he married a lady. And then he said, everything you want is yours. Just don't go in this one room ever. And of course she goes in and that's where he has killed all the other women he married (sighs) because he told them not to go into the room. He's kind of creating his own problem. I think in that story, pretty sure that's what's happening. (laughs) Yeah. Jeez. But you know, I've, I I I don't talk about my personal life too much. But I've never been in a situation where I had a dead body room that I wouldn't let. That I I just feel like if you have a room you don't want people to go into, then you should just lock it and you shouldn't yeah. point it out all the time. Or I mean, clean up after yourself. That's only you know. That's a good point. But this was also a, a different period in history. You know, they didn't have like plastic tarps and. <laughs> All the Dexter Carpeting stuff. like that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Blood-soaked oh. wood, wooden planks. Okay. But uh, before we go too far into folklore, let's take uh, let's take a look at the rest of the story. Okay. Here. So, so the Fisher folks say it would take a lot of effort, essentially, for us to investigate this woman and figure out what's up mm-hmm. with her boat. We have a lot of fishing to do, you know. Mm-hmm. They thought maybe this was just a tradition 
that some other group of people practiced. So they said, okay, we'll just put this craft back together. We won't mess with your stuff. So we'll leave your water. We'll leave your food, mm-hmm. leave, and um, we'll help push this thing back out to the ocean and safe just, travels. Yeah, leave you to your destiny of mm-hmm. sorts. And then the older man who is giving this account uh, has a great quotation here. From human sight, it might be cruel, but it seems to be her predetermined destiny. That's uh, that's kind of cold, but you know, I I get it. Maybe this is what she's meant to do: float around until she finds the rightful place. So February twenty second, eighteen o three, this happens, mm-hmm. and eighteen o three is not that long ago. It's a little over two hundred years. Yeah, which in the span of time is just. Like that. Mm -hmm. You're right. Uh, So that's why you will sometimes hear people describe this as the first quote unquote modern UFO sighting. Let's look at the analysis. All right. Folklore, folkloric similarities. Mm -hmm. Um, As as you know, I extensively mess around with folklore. Yes. And. Um. Folks, I a lot a lot of uh, a lot of you listening now also do extensive folklore research, right? Uh, this stuff is fascinating. It's great, and one of the things that we find in any kind of investigation of anecdotes or legends is that aspects of stories are contagious and they mix together, right? Especially when they cross cultures. Especially when they cross cultures, and then they start to exist in a different framework. Mm -hmm. We mentioned before that stories of fae or fairy abductions, right? Where they Mm -hmm. would take a kid, a human child, a human child and replace it with a a changeling of some sort, like a sick baby. Uh, This was, uh, this was kind of the DNA of what would later become alien abduction stories. And of course, we're not saying that people who believe they have been abducted by some kind of, extraterrestrial entity or a government agency Mm. or extra dimensional thing. We're not saying they don't believe it. We're saying that the two types of stories culturally have a lot in common. Yeah. There's a precedent to the belief of being taken away, taken away by something unknown Mm -hmm. or unseen and then returned. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to, um, when I was a kid, one of my favorite folklore stories was, uh, Rip Van Winkle. Oh, sure. Where he falls asleep. Mm -hmm. Time passes. And he's playing, he's bowling with the, he, he gets wasted. Yeah. One night and he play, he goes bowling with, uh, it changes. Sometimes they're elves, sometimes they're gnomes, mm-hmm. sometimes they're just sketchy mountain folk. Mm-hmm. They're like carnies. They're like oh. short corn, carnies. Ooh, bowling with carnies. Bowling with carnies. That sounds like fun. I, it sounds like something I would watch, read, or listen to. I, I don't, you know. I'm not that great at bowling. It's, oh, okay. It's a curse. So yeah. you, you might get uh, tricked into betting a little bit and then a little more, you know. Oh, wow. Is that, I, I don't know. So that's a, that's a fascinating story. And that's what I was thinking when you brought up the idea of someone losing time, mm. finding their age. Um, and those two stories most likely exist and were created independently. Right? Sure. I mean, they may have mortality is a heck of a motivator. So that probably separately inspired 
the authors of those stories. But for the purposes of this exploration, what that means is that there may be elements of the Utsurubune story that either come from another earlier story mm-hmm. or were later transmitted to something. And then there's also, we would be remiss if we didn't say the UFO, USO angle, right? Sure. Floating object, flying object, submerged object, uh, pros and cons for it being one of those types of objects. Okay, well, let's start off with the ship being made largely out of wood. Yes. That, yeah, you know, traditionally not a spacefaring material, or at least not a ideal spacefaring material. Okay, so that's a con. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll do some devil's advocacy here and say a pro would be that they had never seen this type of craft before. Okay, yeah, that's that is definitely up there. I know that the type of boat was similar to something that they would be familiar with, with the, um, the rounded, burner? the no, the rounded bottom uh-huh. was a boat shape that they would be used to, but okay. the top part right. was like completely out of the, out of the element. Like, why would that be there? Um, another pro is the unusual appearance of the occupant, which to them in this period would have probably would have been alien. Yeah. I mean, not, not even alien in extraterrestrial sense, just a very, very strange looking person. And if we want to bridge kind of the folklore aspect and the UFO USO aspect, we, we look to some stuff uh, having to do with the dragon god of the sea, Ryujin. Um, and this is, there's this place called the Dragon Palace Castle, which is a translation, of course, mm-hmm. that is at the bottom of the sea, where this god lives and he has servants or the the god has servants there are let's see it's built out of solid crystal which might bring in you know what they believed the windows to be created out of um and there are a lot of legends about this place and one of the legends has to do with the inhabitants who had guess what red hair and pink skin ah so it feels like maybe if you see this and you know about these legends, you're aware of Ryujin and the denizens, or excuse me, the inhabitants of uh, yeah. the, the palace under the sea, you may think, well, maybe that's what this is. Maybe this is an emissary from that realm, from that area, or, you know, someone trying to escape. Yeah, you know, and that that's a great point because it, we know that having some pre-existing information, even if you're not, even if it's not at the front of your mind, right? We know that it it can be a very powerful priming influence. Yeah, it's a lens that you mm-hmm. end up seeing it through, even though you don't realize the lens is there. Other uh, ethnologists and historians also took a look at this case, um, often before it became kind of known in the West, mm-hmm. because you you won't find a whole lot of information on it in English. No. There are so, a lot of blogs, though. So if you do speak Japanese, speak and read Japanese, and you have some Japanese sources that you would like to uh, hip us to, uh, then please send them our way. Um, give me what you think the best translations are. I would love to learn more about this. Absolutely. Here's what we have now. Uh, in 
various in various decades after this event, February 22nd, 1803, uh, other experts or scholars investigated this. And one fellow named Yanagida Kunio really went deep. He went hard on the pain. Yes. Here. And he emerged a little more skeptical. So he points out that the circular boat shapes, as as you said, Matt, were not unusual in Japan. They've been around for a while. And he said that the really weird stuff for people at this time would have been windows made of glass and those brazen protective plates so they would make it look um sort of exotic to yeah. the, to the people it'd be like seeing a modern car in the time when you know the model t is the thing that you see rolling down the street you know with with all of the glass products and other things and it would just be strange you couldn't really understand what you're looking at yeah exactly exactly and it would be kind of a um it would be close enough that you would say that's some sort of car yeah. And now they're like, that's some sort of boat. Mm -hmm. uh, he also points out that the oldest versions of this, not necessarily the most popular, but the oldest versions, according to Yanagida, describe humble, circular, open log boats without any dome. Okay. And he argues that these details, these plates and these windows and stuff were added afterwards because people would inevitably ask how did this log boat make it across the open sea oh that's a great question especially an open log boat like that susceptible to any kind of weather or to waves mm -hmm. it's just it's going down uh, but if it's enclosed i guess it makes a lot of sense so in, in this way it's almost like adding on details not necessarily to a lie, but to a story, you know, that you're making up as you go and you add more details to make it seem more credible. Embellishing. Yeah. The high seas could be a dangerous place. And some of that may hinge on the shape of the boat, because if you're imagining, you know, something more like a lifeboat or a canoe, uh, that would be that would probably have a better chance because it's a slightly better shape. But no, this is just. Um, a thing that's spherical at the top and rounded at the bottom and bobbing along. Yeah, just you know? moving where the ocean takes it. It's like bait and tackle. You know what so I mean? So strange. Uh, so Yanagida also points out that most legends similar to that of the Utsurubune sound alike. Someone finds a strange person, almost always a girl or young woman, inside a circular boat and either rescues them or sends them back to the ocean. Huh. Like tale is old as time. Tale is old as time. <laughs> oh, wow. I was going to break into song there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there are so many legends about that kind of thing. And you can imagine the stories that mostly male sailors would make up while out on the high seas. And you're probably familiar with a lot of them. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Matt, because it reminds me of one of the strangest well, one of the strangest cases of sailor stories that uh -oh. I ever found out about. You've, is it safe for work? Yeah, it okay. is. It is. Well, we'll tell the safe for work version. Okay. So for a long time since people were sailing the oceans, mm -hmm. right? 
uh, there were always legends of sea monsters and of aquatic creatures that were very close to people, essentially merfolk, mm-hmm. mermaids. And sailors would talk about seeing mermaids from a distance on a shore. I mean, this goes back to like Greco-Roman stuff with sirens singing. Yeah. Um, and then the best guess that a couple of people have. No, I, I know this. Is that they were manatees. Yeah. That doesn't, you know, that's the thing that gets me. It's, it, I keep thinking, how long did these guys have to be out there on the yeah. ocean to, to think, uh, to mistake a manatee for a person? And this, this misidentification, whether it was through, you know, seeing a seal or a manatee or a, another creature that would kind of like lounge out sure. there. Sure. I mean, I guess maybe a walrus, but the tusk would probably make it hard to mistake. I guess it depends on the distance. Exactly. But, um, you know, in a way, if these people were hoping to see uh, a a human of some sort, then they were already kind of primed to see it. Mm -hmm. And if people were familiar with these sorts of legends, then... They would end up in the in the telling, especially if it's oral recounting. Yep. Uh, memory is so treacherous; they might end up accidentally adding details that somebody else misunderstands mm-hmm. that add up into something else. Um, there or were, or if it's a great story that you're retelling, you right. know, at a tavern somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, why would you just say, "Oh no, it was just a walrus"? That's no fun. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it was a it was a beautiful mermaid, and yeah. The, and the person you found adrift in this boat had hair extensions. I'm not discounting stories of merfolk. I'm just saying it's unlikely. That's all. The ocean is a big place. That's right. And from our previous episodes, we know that if there are any large undiscovered creatures today, they have the odds are highest that they would exist in the ocean. Yep. Right. So maybe they're there. I don't want to. I don't want to ruin that for anybody, you know. But uh, I I'm, do have to say they definitely weren't um, discovered by a certain channel on television in a series called Mermaids. No, they we can confirm were that. They absolutely were not, and I would never play play ball with that notion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not going to act like I'm not going to go see Aquaman. I'll check oh, it yeah. out <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've diverted us. The the um, the point here is that. There were other scholars who were taking rigorous looks at this. Uh, one is named Dr. Kazu Tanaka. Yes, this is a professor for computer and electronics engineering uh, at a university in Tokyo. He investigated the original texts, the the three texts that are you can find now. They actually exist in real life right now in museums. Mm-hmm. You can go and pick them up. Um, and this, he did this research in 1997 and he's considering, he's really looking at the popular versions of UFO sightings, the more modern ones that we can think about, and then comparing those mm-hmm. to the Tsurobune event, let's mm-hmm. say, or the retelling of it. And he, he points out that these legends of Tsurobune, it never, it never flies. Right. It never, you know, drives. Like we said, it has no control mechanisms. At least mm-hmm. it's not recorded. Mm-hmm. It doesn't show any signs of technology. 
besides being a boat and maybe having some windows. Or and, like extraordinary technology. Yeah, nothing beyond what could no, be like produced. GPS, no lasers, no... Uh, <laughs> What's that thing in Star Trek where it, it will just create any food or beverage you desire? Oh, uh, the it's the food machine. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> right in, right in. Or tricorder. They didn't. She didn't have a tricorder with her. Right. That's a good example. Um, it just. I mean, this this ship just drifts. It just drifted across the water. It drifted to the fishermen, or it didn't even drift to them. They had to go get it and mm. reel it in. And so, uh. Tanaka concluded that this tale was a mix of folklore and imagination. Uh, he also based his assumptions on Yanagida's earlier work. He had one more, uh, or he had a couple more holes to poke in the story, which we'll examine after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. And we're back. Matt, there's one big problem with this story. And it's a really big problem that as somebody from the United States just learning about this in 2017, I wouldn't have thought about unless somebody like Dr. Tanaka went through and actually examined it. And that's the location of where this event purportedly happened. Yes, according to Dr. Tanaka, uh, locations that have been referenced in various accounts of this are, in fact, fictitious. Uh, 
he specifically points out Haratonohama and Harayadori. To make the anecdote sound credible, he believes the author designated the beaches as personal acreages of a um, a local landowner named Ogasawa Nagashige. Uh, and this this character did this is a real person yes. who did live during the Edo period, but his land was in in the heartland or and, away from the water, <laughs> right? And so it seems pretty definite, at least according to Dr. Tanaka, that this fellow uh, never had any contact with the fishermen on the Pacific coast. Uh, the Ogasawara clan served the uh, Tokugawa dynasty, and they had power over most of northeastern Japan until 1868. And that's a long time after this occurred. Right, right. And their um, their main land holdings were in the Hitachi province and geographically that's very close to eastern beaches. And so Dr. Tanaka found it very odd that such a strange incident could have occurred and it wasn't commented upon in any official documents, right? Yeah, you'd think so. If something this strange and seemingly important occurred to an individual who's that close in proximity to power occurred, you'd think it would be written down somewhere. Somebody somewhere is being told this and they would go, okay, this strange thing happened. Perhaps there is some kind of invaders going on with this. It's at least worth documentary. Right. Yeah. And let's also keep in mind that this was during a uh, period of isolation, national mm-hmm. isolation, right? Uh, where in Japan really limited, um, really limited a lot of international interactions. So nearly all foreigners were barred from entering, except under very specific circumstances. The common uh, resident of Japan, like the normal, you know, Jane or John Doe of Japan, like you and I, had very little chance of ever leaving the country. So this would have been beyond unusual mm-hmm. right uh and there is a remarkable incident that is documented that dr tanaka found and it happened in 1824 when a british whaler was stranded on the northeastern coast of the hitachi district before you ask no oh. he did not show up in a weird cupcake looking ship uh tanaka also found out that during the rulership of the tokugawa clan uh the Ogasawara family and the Tokugawa started mapping their territories. Mm. And this is important because the names of both of the beaches mentioned in the text are missing. And they also do not appear on the maps of uh, the whole of Japan, which came out in 1907. Oh, boy. If the name of a village, a city, or a place had changed in history, this would have been noted, right? Mm -hmm. So because of this... Dr. Tanaka thinks thinks that this is probably just a legend or folklore similar to um, similar to the stories in modern urban legends, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the 911 traced the call and the phone call was coming from inside the house and it wasn't at this town and it wasn't my first cousin, but it's someone that knows my first cousin and they live a few towns over. And there was a hook sticking out of the side of the driver window. Mm. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure 
it was a Pontiac. We, uh, the Pontiac's not around anymore. This happened to someone's uh, older brother who went to a school a couple districts away. They were, I think I know him. Yeah, they were a few grades above us. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's sure. always just a little bit a little bit too far to reach, yeah. and it's tantalizingly possible. Well, and let's go back into this 1824 account of the British whaler who got stranded. Okay. Uh, the first accounting of this is recorded the next year in uh, the first... The first one, what was it called? Um, Tales of the Rabbit Garden. Mm-hmm. 1825 is when that is officially written. So perhaps there's a little styling going on there of something, an actual occurrence, and then you bring some folklore into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's at least a, a great tale to put into your book called Tales from the Rabbit Garden. That's a good point. So we know there's an isolationist place where this sort of incident would have been reported immediately, right? Mm-hmm. And also these, uh, Ethnologists and historians who will look back at this later um, in the modern day, uh, they they pointed out something that really caught me, which is that originally aliens or UFOs were not part of the conversation. Okay, you know, there was there wasn't a, like a term for flying saucer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so or extraterrestrial, I guess. There might be a term, but it wouldn't be applied the same way we use it today. A visitor of sorts, but not like that. So they're saying that over time, the UFO thing got retrofitted onto it. You know what I mean? Uh, The particularly European appearance of the woman, right? Uh, Yeah. Pale skin. Shade of skin, red hair. Uh, The upper part of the Utsuru Bune and the unknown writing right the the language that the fishermen could not identify uh lead both tanaka and yanagita to the conclusion that the entire story was based on this historical circumstance um people of the of the period were uh totally insulated from the outside world so that this was more a tale reflecting xenophobic cultural attitudes wow sort of the same way again that modern urban legends reflect fears that are already in popular culture, right? Like in the 1990s, the satanic panic, late 80s, 1990s, satanic panic thing gripped the nation and these people, every every region had some sort of tale of a secret occult thing going on. And in some cases, I'll go on record saying it, yeah, in some cases, they were probably true. Not that, like, dark magic worked or anything, but there were people who conducted ritual murders. Yeah, and it may not have had anything to do with Satan or anything like that. Right. It may, it, But that stuff happened. It mm-hmm. just didn't happen near as often nor as widespread as mm-hmm. people thought it did. But there's often a seed of truth in these sorts of stories. And if we look at it from a structural perspective, the construction of the story it's ultimately like a lot of other legends. It's self-explaining. The woman disappears. No one knew what she said. The boxes goes with her. Yeah. There's no artifact. There's no, no trace. Ship. Yeah. Nothing. And another thing, which was new information to us is that the people of the period here apparently had great interest in paranormal things, loved ghost stories, monster stories, bizarre events, so it wouldn't be surprising to find 
these stories of the strange and inexplicable in these books. Yeah, those are the best stories, in my opinion. That's, I think, one of the big reasons why you and I and Noel and Tristan are interested in these things, because it's so other and outside of anything we experience that you get to you live in that world where monsters exist and ghosts, you know, remain after the physical body leaves. I think we're going to have to differ here, Matt. You don't want to live in though? No, monsters do exist. <sighs> I think. I but, think so. but like, like krakens or are we talking about human monsters? What kind of monsters are we talking about? Werewolves? So when we bring it all back together, what are our conclusions? Could this be nothing more than a popular legend recited over and over, changing a bit each time? It's pretty clear that in the years following the initial reports, a large portion of the population accepted this as fact, believed something came ashore. But does that mean it actually happened? I mean, the fictitious locations are a real obstacle here. Yeah. And as far as Dr. Tanaka looked into it, it seems that those locations are indeed, it's much more likely that those locations were fictitious rather than renamed. Yeah. For me, it's more and more feeling like a version or a retelling of an older story that had some new details put into it. And I really, I really think your, well, their analysis and then our, going over uh, the idea that perhaps it was a morphing. It was a morphing of these, these folklore tales uh, dealing with the isolationism in the area at the time in the 1820, 1825, when the story was written. And then later on kind of doing the same thing, except for in more modern times in the 1990s, tales of alien spacecraft that were very popular, then get morphed. Like this thing gets or they get pulled into this thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So then it's just kind of just been changing over time, little by little. But there there are some other questions, and I think we can end on some questions here. How seaworthy would a vessel like this actually be? As we said, no sails, no steering equipment, no oars, etc. Where did it come from? Could it have come from Russia, perhaps? If you look at mm. some of the ocean currents around here, uh, not around here, we're not in Japan <laughs> right now, but around the landmass of Japan, you see here on the coast, the, there's a current that goes from sort of southwest to northeast along the bottom and then later sort of the eastern part of sure. Japan. But at the top, there's a current in in the northeast, there's a current that goes the exact opposite direction. So as these if you if you look at the way these currents swell uh swarm around, it looks like it's possible that something with no steering could have drifted down. Sure. Um but you know, the best way to find that out is to build one of these ships Ooh. and put it out in the water and see what happens. What are you what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing this summer? I'm building a round ship that has <laughs> some brazen sides and right. a couple of windows. Uh, but, you know, the one last thing we have to get into is, is it possible that there's something even crazier? Like the here's where it's get it gets crazy moment. Like, could this have been a person that was 
pulled out of time, perhaps mm. out of some other dimension, out of some other, you know, maybe a time when ships did look like that or an alternate dimension. Yeah. I don't I, know, man. I know that's, you're getting into the weirdness. I mean, probably not. Right. I, yeah. especially cause there's meat and water, like some kind of container of water bedding. Right. Recognizable stuff. Yeah. And oh yeah. And the language could have just been Cyrillic Russian. Sure. You know, and, uh, if there's an isolationist policy, then the, could chances, be any language. the chances of people knowing or e- even without like speaking or reading, just recognizing another written language and being able to say, oh, that's Russian. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, that's French or something. Those chances are pretty low. And the very last question, the one that stuck with me, I don't know about you, Matt, but the one that stuck with me the one that has our producer shrugging in uh in fuming and frustration <laughs> what happened to the lady in the ship what happened to the woman on the ship well she went back down to the dragon palace and you know she got she took a bunch of notes she wrote them inside her mm-hmm. ship that's what she was doing that's why there's all the writing there and they were like did you remember the box and she said oh yeah oh, I, I got the yeah. box definitely got the box <laughs> <laughs> The question is, what was its function? What was it doing? Maybe it was some kind of sound recording device mm. or a camera, maybe? Yeah. I maybe, mean, yeah, maybe it was an NES classic. People are getting doing weird stuff to get those. Is that, is that how Nintendo? It was a brilliant marketing campaign that started centuries ago. I know. Four video games. I just found out that they were making, you know, cards in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty awesome. Nintendo, good yes. on you for making that switch. Get oh, it? Oh, oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't even expect that one until that was happened. nice. <laughs> that was nice. And we would like to hear your opinion about this. And additionally, we would like to hear other historical anomalies that you have found because whether this is entirely a legend, whether it's based in truth, whether it's something even weirder than the various theories we explored today, we'd like to hear about it. Yeah. In your part of the world, did a ship like this show up in a little bit later in 1802, 1803? Maybe this, you know, matches up somewhere else in the world where it just floated to. Did your parents, grandparents or ancestors meet when one of them washed ashore in a mysterious craft? If so, have you taken a DNA test? We'd love to hear about it. <laughs> or just send us some DNA and, uh, you know, we'll take care of it. <laughs> or you can write us an email, uh, which reminds me, it's time for our... Shout out corners. Our first shout out comes from Sydney. Sydney says, hi guys, I was listening to both episodes of your Serial Killers series. Loved them. Uh, you said you might do a third one. I was going to suggest maybe the West Mesa murders from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I live here and people are still talking about them pretty often. I don't know. Check it out if you want. Thanks for reading. Oh, all right, Sydney. I don't know much about that. Ben, are you aware of these at all? The, uh, this was absolutely news to me. Um, I think we should do a third episode or third yes. installment of that series. So let us know if we would like Matt, Noel, and I to... Uh, to investigate this in a future episode and send us, uh, just take a page out of Sydney's book and send us your suggestions. Uh, awesome. Thank you for writing, Sydney. I'm, I'm glad that, um, 
enjoy is not the right word to use. I think we talked mm-hmm. about it in that episode, but there's something compelling and fascinating, especially when you consider how many of these crimes occur with relatively little fanfare outside of their region. Yeah. I mean, the Highway of Tears was an active hunting ground for how long? Oh, my God. Decades. And just to add a little bit of mystery here to the end of it, I just looked it up. Ben, in 2009, the remains of 11 women were found buried in the desert of West Mesa, and no suspects have been arrested, and a serial killer is believed to be responsible. All right, we're on the case. Our next uh, our next shout out is a little bit unusual. It's something that we we haven't always done and it's something I'd like your help with folks. So I went on Twitter recently for a tangentially related thing to ask a question uh, because I spent part of an afternoon trying to figure out the proper plural of Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Is it just Bigfoot like sheep? Yeah, there are, are there like are several Bigfoot, and there are some sheep. Um, or is it uh, Bigfoots? Three Bigfoots were on the road that day. Or is it Big Feet? Man, I don't even know how many Big Feet I was hearing walking around. <laughs> These are great examples, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> this is this is a gift. So uh, we went on Twitter. We asked about it, and we we got a lot of responses. We're just going to read a few here. Oh man, Jan has a. a Great one. This is my favorite. All right. What is it? Uh, Jan says, I believe it's like surgeons and attorneys general. Big's foot. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, and then Stephen even says one Bigfoot, more Bigfoot and Bigfootist. <laughs> uh, Definitely. Kyle Sherman says, I wonder if you can call a group of Bigfoot a trample. A trample of Bigfoot. You can now. Right? But then what do you, you got to still say something for a trample of. Bigfoots. See, here's the thing. Okay, I was thinking, I, I spent way too much time thinking about <laughs> this. You wouldn't say teeth brushes if you had two toothbrushes. That's very true. Uh, so, uh, also, yeah, you're never brushing a single tooth. Well, I, I guess sometimes you are no, uh, that's due to circumstances, life. but yeah. it's a teeth brush. It's a teeth brush. <laughs> uh, so, we also had a buddy friend of the show, Josh Clark, chime in. Do you want to know Josh Clark? I know that guy. He and I talk about the issues, the important <laughs> issues at hand. He voted for Bigfoots. Really? Which is sort of what David Becerra, I feel like David Becerra from our earlier Bigfoot interview, he, the plural he used, he used was Bigfoots. Mm-hmm. Well, do write in and let us know. <laughs> Because I still can't let this go, and it seems like there's not really a consensus. Uh, we have time for one more shout-out. Jeff from Ontario, shout-out to you, Jeff. Says, hey, guys, I just listened to the Pyramids episode. I listened to the whole thing, wondering if you were going to mention the Pyramids on Mars. By the way, that is whoosh, whoosh, Pyramids on Mars. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of glad you didn't go there. It would have cheapened the sincerity of the subject. Oh, okay. We did mention... Something that actually I kind of need to correct. I said a monolith on one of the moons of Jupiter. That is incorrect. It's on one of the Mar- moons of Mars. Hmm. Okay. Uh, but we did mention that. Let's get back in here. Uh, Jeff also writes, you were right about Skadoosh preceding Kung Fu Panda by quite a bit. I'm a big Jables fan and user of Skadoosh as sort of an exclamation point. 
enough so that it was one of my niece and nephew's first words. Well, congratulations. Uh, it brought them a ton of joy, and it was super cute to see their smiles peek out as they struggle to say it through their pacifiers. Thanks for the great show, Jeff. <laughs> well, thank you, Jeff. Yeah, thank um, you, Jeff. You know, I think pyramids on any other planet is just an awesome topic. Because if it if we did find that, mm -hmm. I mean, the implications, Ben. <laughs> right, right. But again, going back to that episode, is that a pyramid or is it just sort of a pointy mountain? It's probably pointy rock, I just like, like the one that they discovered in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then also, and this will warm Noel's heart, will warm our colleague's heart to hear uh, your information about Skadoosh, Jeff. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for writing. This concludes our. And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Attention, true crime enthusiasts. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.